growing up, uh, I wasn't really surrounded by any kind of faith. My, uh, my father is a non-practicing Jew and my mother is a non-practicing Christian. So we celebrated Hanukkah and Christmas and Easter and that was about it growing up. Um, but I had no real exposure to faith, to what my, you know, what the faith was of Judaism or Christianity. My parents were always very secular, so I kind of followed their lead and did whatever it took to get by. If that meant lying to people, I'd lie to people. Um, there were no, there was no need to serve any higher purpose other than gratifying myself and my own needs and wants. I kind of lived that way for a long time. I just kept escalating and escalating and I never really learned how to deal with problems. I'd get in fights at school and um, things like that. Um, as I got older, um, things got more complicated. I started going through a pretty heavy depression in high school. Um, at one point I, I tried to commit suicide and I uh, had to go to a psychiatric uh, ward of a hospital. I was eventually kicked out of there for fighting, and then I was kicked out of another three hospitals for fighting. Um, and my parents didn't know what to do with me, so they sent me to Youth in Need for a couple weeks, and I was kicked out of there for running away. Um, it, I, they tried to send me to a long-term boys' home, I was kicked out of there after two days for fighting. Um, and I just didn't know what to do, you know. I, um, certain advisors were telling my parents that they should uh, turn custody over to the state. And um, one of them had said that they thought that if they didn't turn custody over to the state, that I would probably be in a federal prison within two years. After going through all of those uh, facilities, my parents brought me back home. Um, I didn't really know why at the time. I found out later that my grandfather, whom I hadn't even been speaking to, he had been apart from the family for many years, had talked them into keeping me. Um, I don't know why. I, I believe that was God. Towards the end of my senior year in high school, I started drinking. Um, it was just occasionally at first, and then um, after I graduated high school and started going to community college, it became more and more. Um, for probably two years, I was drinking about a fifth of gin a day. Um, it, was, it was very expensive, and it got, it got to the point where I was stealing alcohol. I was also using marijuana at the time and um, several other substances. Um, but the one that was, the only one that I was addicted to was the alcohol. And I didn't know how to stop. At, at the end of my freshman year in college, um, one of my friends whom, whom I had known a long time uh, invited me to go to church with him. And I did. I don't really know why, all I know is that I felt desperate. I, I knew that I had a drinking problem, I knew that I wasn't doing well in school, I was failing most of my classes, um, I was still struggling very heavily with depression, so I went to church with him, and um, the pastor um, 
led me to Christ that night. That's when things got rough because I knew that I was living in sin. Before, I didn't know there was such a thing as sin. After I became a Christian, I knew I had to stop drinking and I didn't know how. I still wanted to live the life that I had been living, um, doing whatever felt good, um, lying to get away with it, but I knew that I shouldn't. Um, I was going to church on and off for a few years. After I quit drinking, I was going to church more regularly and slowly uh, phasing out the things that I knew I shouldn't be doing. After a while of phasing out the things that I uh, knew that I shouldn't be doing, I started feeling God's call on my life to ministry. So I started talking to some of the pastors at my church about that and um, two of them advised me against going towards ministry. Um, they didn't they didn't feel that that was God's call on my life, um, but I knew that it was. I knew that God was calling me towards Central Bible College, and um, so I started looking into it, and one of my pastors had told me not to do it. He thought it was a waste of money and that I would fail out, or that I would get kicked out. Um, but I really felt that that was God's call on my life. While I was in Bible college, um, we uh, we had to do a form of ministry while we were there. And an opportunity came up to do prison ministry. And I thought it was really interesting and I felt like I could relate to that better than the arts forms of ministry that most students were in. So. I signed up to do prison ministry, and every week for two and a half years, I went to a federal prison and ministered to inmates, and then looked back and remembered the man that told me that I would be in prison, and laughed. And God has a sense of humor about those things. I graduated Bible College in 2010, in May of 2010 and married Melissa in uh, June of 2010 and we had Jeremiah in June of 2011. I would say God's grace has been on display in my life in, in all of the, the struggles that he's brought me through. He has shown me that, that his will and his plan completely supersede anything that that man can imagine. God has really blessed me. I'm, uh, I'm just so happy to be with Melissa and Jeremiah and getting ready to move into a new house. And I don't know what God has in store for us, but I'm pretty excited about it. I'm scared, but I'm pretty excited about it too. If you have your Bible, you can open it to John 11. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, we've got some on the back we'd like to give to you. Um, feel free to jump up and grab one of those if you, if you want. Uh, but I, I want to say, in light of, of those words that are behind us, hearing someone's story of redemption is an amplifier to the grace-filled voice of God 
Listen closely when you hear one. Uh, Every one of us has a redemption story in some capacity. And just like David's, which is filled with depression and anger at the beginning and leading to alcoholism and, and some substance abuse and fighting and all those difficult things that has led to his eventual redemption, we all have some sort of redemption story. Maybe it's, it's a lifelong story. Maybe it's something that we've been going through for a month. Maybe it's something we've been going through for a few years. But we each and every one of us have a story. And we're now, I don't know, seven or eight people into this stories series on redemption. And, and every single one, as, as I'm thinking about this idea that God is kind of directing us and the, the stuff we'll think about tonight, I'm thinking about each particular one uh, that we've done, all the ones that we'll do. And, and the story is what I am experiencing now is not at all what I deserve. David's youth and childhood and his, and his upbringing and all those things shouldn't wind up with a, a marriage and a, and a beautiful son. They should wind up differently. And I think about the house that, that I'm living in and the, the tornado, tornado that came and, and I, I, don't, I don't deserve that. I, without someone intervening in those circumstances, I'm living in a broken down house without a roof with mold creeping in the walls because of the, what, what happened. But as it is, something intervened and, and I want us to pay attention that when we have our stories and every one of us to some degree, is walking through a redemption story right this second. And when we pay attention to that story, it's like putting a microphone, an amplifier, up to the face of God and allowing him to speak to you. So what that means is, at all times, God is speaking to you. And what I want to come of this message from us this morning is for us to just Stop, realize, and listen. So let's, uh, let's turn to, to John chapter 11 and understand that without God or someone intervening in your situation, what you deserve is death. I'm going to read the first four verses of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. You may have heard those names before. Mary and Martha were very uh, integral in the, the life of Jesus. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Jesus loved this guy, and he's in a different city, and word is sent to Jesus that this guy that you love is sick. Please come and heal him. And Jesus' immediate response is, what's happening right now in this guy's life doesn't lead to death. And I want to back up and get a big picture 
view of what just happened and apply it to us. What's happening in your life right now doesn't lead to death. And even if it leads to a physical death, it doesn't lead to the ultimate death. The rest of this story is Jesus doesn't go to Lazarus right away. In fact, it's several days, maybe a couple of weeks before Jesus actually makes it to Bethany to see Lazarus. And he's dead, and he's been dead for four days. And so here's Mary and Martha who love Jesus, and they know that Jesus loves their brother, and they know that Jesus could have come to the city four or five days ago and saved him, but he didn't. And I don't know, my response is probably anger. If, if I know that somebody is injured and hurt and I love them, I'm going to do what I can immediately to do that. Jesus' response is this illness doesn't lead to death. The point of this illness is the glory of God. I want to say that again. The point of this illness is the glory of God. The point of your brokenness, the point of hardship, difficulty, stuff, is the glory of God. So Jesus comes to Bethany. Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And he gets there. And people are confused. But Jesus raises from the dead and people confess that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, Jesus let Lazarus die and his reason was that the Son of God might be glorified. Zero in on this thought and pay attention as we talk about this story and other stories that focus in on the redemption of God and not the particular situation. Let's not get lost in a particular situation. Skip down in John 11 to verse 27. It says, She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. This is Martha saying this to Jesus. And this is well before that Jesus actually just comes to the city. He hasn't raised her brother from the dead yet. And she says, I believe that you are the Christ before it actually happens. Uh, verse, I'm going to read more here. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the God. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So Jesus hasn't even done anything. He's just coming into the city and they're confessing that he is the Christ because they're, they're trusting in the midst of hardship and difficulty that Jesus is going to come through. And they're believing Jesus when he says, this does not lead to death. And that's, that's the point of, of every circumstance in our lives. Every circumstance, from the mundane to the, the huge Every circumstance in your life is getting you to a place where we trust and have faith and surrender in who God is and what he's done for us. And when he says to us, what you're experiencing right now does not lead to death. That should bring great hope to us. What you experience right now does not lead to your death. 
when, when I'm let you in into my study closet, when I'm this week as I'm studying this and and God is interacting with my heart with this particular point that what we are experiencing does not lead to our death. I stop and I think about you. Think about John and and Ben and Ben and Mike, David, Jeff and Megan. I, I think about and I understand that, that God is, is bringing us together to get us to pay attention to the redemption story that he's speaking into our lives every day. It doesn't lead to death. Trust me, I got this. And Martha, even before it happens, says, you are the Christ. And that is the point that we would see God as Messiah as Christ. And so many times we see that word Christ in Scripture and we want to think it's Jesus' last name. My last name is Maxidon. Jesus' last name is not Christ. It's a title. He is Savior, Messiah, anointed one sent by God to bring, to reconcile the world to holy God. When you hear Christ, that's what's being spoken. The one sent by God for the purpose of reconciling the world to God. And here's Martha in the midst of her circumstances, proclaiming, you are the Messiah sent by God to reconcile us to God. John Piper says this, the love of God is doing whatever needs to be done at whatever cost to himself or to us so that we will, be, we will see and will be satisfied by the love of Christ forever and ever. at whatever cost to himself or to us, to bring us into relationship with him. That's the point of your life and everything that happens to you is to get you to see and pay attention to that. And hardship comes and great times come, all to bring you into relationship with God. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about Paul and David, how this attached to Paul and how this attached to David. First or Second Corinthians twelve. Flip there if you would, and it's also going to be on the screen above me as well. These are some familiar verses uh, to a lot of us. Starting in verse seven <clears throat> says So to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness." Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a lot of speculation as to what this thorn was in Paul. Probably it was some sort of physical ailment that kept him from 
being as active as he wanted to be. Maybe it was some sort of darkness, depression. We don't really know. Scripture doesn't talk about it much besides this. Um, But Scripture also says this thorn was given a messenger of Satan for a purpose. That purpose is to keep him from being conceited. And this word, this phrase, from being conceited, is really to try to get people to quit paying attention to him, to Paul. To, it's, it's not just me. You're not focusing in on me. And everybody, don't just pay attention to me. It's Paul distracting people from looking at himself, but instead to look at God. And if you look at this passage, this phrase in verse 7, becoming conceited, is bookended, Right? Let's look at verse 7 again. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. That is, God spoke to Paul and Paul communicated that speech to the world. That's the revelations that he's talking about. And it was beautiful and people came to Christ because of the words that came out of, of Paul's mouth. So to keep this from people paying attention to Paul instead of paying attention to God, a thorn was given to him. So this being conceited is the bookend to that idea, that concept, Right? Becoming conceited, and then at the end of verse 7, it says, Becoming conceited again. So stop paying attention to me. Instead, pay attention to what's in between there that God is great in these revelations that He's given to me. Verse 8, three times He asked God that it would leave Him. And then verse 9, God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. Another way to say it, this doesn't lead to death. What you're experiencing now doesn't lead to death. My grace is sufficient for you. And I look around, and I know difficulty that people are facing and hardship that people are facing in the midst of of just the pressures and stress of life and the pressures and stress of, of physical ailments, emotional ailments, stuff. God is saying to you here in this moment, my grace is sufficient for you. And when we see, that's why I, we had those words at the beginning. When we see that, we're holding a microphone up to the voice of God so that he can speak clearly with such simplicity and such depth. My grace is sufficient for you. I got it. It's okay. Go back up to verse 7 and see this phrase. A messenger of Satan was sent. Great courage comes over my soul to think when we encounter darkness, even when we encounter Satan, evil, in Paul's circumstance, God allowed a messenger of Satan, a demon, to distract and attack Paul. God allowed it to happen because he had a greater purpose than this demon had for some specific fleeting instance in Paul's life. A messenger of Satan was sent to harass. This word Harass is translated elsewhere as to beat with fists. Brutal and gruesome word. Harass doesn't do it justice. 
This really means the Greek word here is to beat with fists. Imagine you lying helpless on the floor while someone beats you with fists. That's the word that's being communicated. A messenger of Satan was sent to beat Paul with fists. And the point of that was to keep Paul from paying attention to himself, to be caught up in his physical situation. He pleaded with God to take it from him, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Genesis 50, 20 tells the story of when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and was left for dead after being beaten and attacked. And God used that circumstance to save Israel in the midst of a famine. Joseph saw a famine coming. They hoarded food so that they could eat during the midst of the famine because if not for the beating and sold into slavery of Joseph, he's not there to keep them to hoard food so that they can eat during the times of famine. God had something bigger in mind than being sold into slavery and being left for dead. Psalm 50:20. Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As we hold the microphone up to the grace-filled voice of God, he says to you, I've got something bigger in mind. Don't be so consumed with your circumstances. I've got something bigger in mind. Romans 8, 28, Paul saying again, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. And it's so simplistically beautiful. We serve a God who is bigger than the work of Satan, who orchestrates even the work of Satan to bring about good out of evil events, out of difficulty. There's nothing good about getting kicked out of six facilities, hospitals for fighting. There's nothing good about that. There's nothing good about alcoholism. But God used what Satan intended for evil, the beating of fists upon David Silverstein to bring about his redemption. So many times I've heard this. I've, as we're recording the stories in my living room or someplace else, I've, I've heard this among Ben and, and Rebecca, and specifically in David this week, is I can't, and fill in the blank, God, you're going to have to. I can't stop this. You're going to have to take it from me. I can't save myself. You're going to have to. I can't shake depression. I can't shake alcoholism. I can't shake self-righteousness. You're going to have to take it from me. And that's, that's the purpose of every thorn, of every hardship, of every difficulty that's brought into your life, that we can, we can speak that. And I think and I, I hope that the end of this is that we can 
sit and look in the midst of a difficult situation. An impossibly difficult situation. And see God's orchestrating, ordaining hand in the middle of it. Even if it's something simple or something tragic, in the middle of it, to see God's orchestrating, ordaining hand, as Martha did when she said, when her brother was still in the grave, You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Content is just to think this is good. For I am, for I think that weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, I think that they're all good. Other words that are trans, we, we translate this word in this context as content. Other, other times in scripture, it's translated as pleasure, good, pleased, best. I think weakness is best. I think calamity is good. I think hardship is pleasure giving. Can we say that in the midst of it? This is the point. This is the purpose. For David, his difficulty as a child growing up, his depression, his fighting, his home situation, all led to alcoholism, which led to the end of himself. An evil thing, such as alcoholism, led to his salvation and his continual sanctification. His story is speaking to all of us in this moment. God is saying his grace is bigger than your demons. His grace is bigger than your insults. His grace is bigger than your persecutions, than your hardships and your calamities. David's life and story are the amplifier to the grace-filled work of God. As I'm studying this week and thinking this week, I'm, I'm brought to tornadoes to fires, to accidents, to cancer, heart disease, alcoholism, depression, divorce. Just like John 11, this does not lead to death. It leads to the glory of God. Because love does not take away the thorn. Just like he didn't heal Lazarus. Love has something more important, more satisfying to give than than peace in your current circumstance. Than comfort in your current circumstance. Love has something more satisfying to give to you. It can't be touched. Scripture says it can't perish, can't spoil, it can't fade. Nothing in this world can touch your inheritance that's kept in heaven for you. Your health can be gone. Yesterday, I were jackhammering in, in Dave's basement. I'm, I lift this jackhammer up after it gotten stuck, and I, 
I'm sitting down most of the sermon today because my back is just broken. It hurts really, really bad. My health, my body, your health, your body can be taken from you at any moment. Tornadoes, cancer, fire, disease are all facts that can take things from you. But it can't lead to death. Just can't. Hearing someone's story of redemption is an amplifier to the grace of God. Pay attention when you hear one. Pay attention when it happens to you. Let's pray and dwell on these things. God, I thank you for your beauty, for your grace, and for your peace. God, I thank you for the accident of Steve Kuntz a couple of weeks ago. Father, this passage has taught me to thank you for that accident because it's drawn us into your presence and seen you, Father. I thank you for those reasons, not because you healed him. God, I thank you for tornadoes. I thank you for heart disease. I thank you for cancer. Thank you for fires. I thank you for depression. Thank you for ailing physical bodies. Because what Satan, our enemy, meant for evil, you work for good, God. God, I pray that you would give us perspective in the midst of difficulty. To see that you offer something much more satisfying than comfort, Father. You offer yourself. Bigger, better comfort than we've ever known. God, I pray now that you would draw us into your presence. Father, please draw us into your presence, God, that we might experience you, Father. God, I pray this time of response would not be habit, Father. But instead, we would listen to your voice. We would pray. We would journal. We would think. We would sing. We would sit. We would stand. We would move. However it is that you're leading us, Father. We would place our complete surrender and faith and hope in you alone, God not in ourselves. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.